Welcome to the Free to Choose Media Podcast. Dr. Alex Inkles, Senior Fellow, Hoover Institution, and Dr. Robert Hessen, Senior Research Fellow, Hoover Institution, reflect on sociology and social change in the modern world. We hope you enjoyed today's episode, and don't forget to subscribe to the Free to Choose Media Podcast. Alex, there's an old saying, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans, implying that if you set out on some course of career or path, things will occur that will knock you off that path. How did you get onto your path? How did you become a sociologist? You were born in Brooklyn in 1920. You went to Cornell and graduated in 1941. Then came uh, World War II and service with the OSS. Then you went back to Cornell, got a PhD in 1946. How did you become involved in Russian studies? How did you become a sociologist? At some point, I see that you were taking psychoanalytic training. Were you tempted to be a psychiatrist? And how did you get deflected from that, which might have been more lucrative than the path you actually did pursue? Oh, that's a lot of questions. Yes. Uh, and my life does involve a series of departures from what looks like a standard plan. Uh, the first departure came at the point when I decided to become a sociologist instead of becoming a lawyer. My original ambition was to be a lawyer. I had the plan of making a million dollars in the first 10 years, <laughs> which at that time was a lot of money. Yes. And I thought, with that money, I'm going to do social good the rest of my life. But the plan was changed because of a concatenation of circumstances. One, I fell in love with a young woman who was also a student at Cornell in my class named Bernadette, Bernadette Kane. Uh, and I became the favorite of my professor of sociology, uh, Slats Cottrell, Leonard Cottrell. And they sort of got together. They didn't think I should become a lawyer. They thought I'd be too aggressive. Uh, anyhow, they thought, he thought I should become a sociologist. So they got together and they made me an offer I couldn't refuse. <laughs> she said, I'll marry you if, if. you don't become a lawyer. Uh. And he said, I'll get you a fellowship to be my personal assistant in the Department of Sociology at Cornell, and you go for a PhD in sociology. So that was the first major deflection from my path. Uh, what happened later that didn't take me off sociology, but got me onto a path I didn't anticipate, was of course that the war came along, the First World War, uh, followed by the Second. Yeah. Uh, I was <laughs> involved in the Second World War, not the First. My uncle died uh, uh, in the American Expeditionary Forces in the First World War, and I was named after him, actually. Uh -huh. That's where I have my name, Alex. Uh, um, in fact, my family tried to keep it a secret from my grandmother from, uh, th that he was dead, so they never called me by my actual name, because if they called me Alex, they would know I was named after sure, him. Sure, someone dead. He, yeah. he must be dead. Uh, but to come back to the main... What do they call you instead? They called me Baby. Baby. Uh, Until he was 19. So I had, to, I had to overcome that during the rest <laughs> of my life. Uh, but to come back to the story of deflections, sure. uh, at the time we were just about to get into the Second World War, the United States, it became apparent that we would be in great need of people who had technical skills of various kinds, especially in the sciences, and rare languages. At that time, Russian was a rare language in the sure. United States. And a program was started called the Evernormal Granary of Language Experts. Uh, Phil Mosley was one of the people involved in getting that started. He was a professor of history at Cornell. I had taken his course in Russian history just as part of the exploration of the world that I did as an undergraduate. Uh, he organized a course of Russian training, intensive Russian training at Cornell, and he asked 
personally people he knew who he thought were good candidates in the social sciences to come into that course to learn Russian on the assumption that eventually we would probably be in the war and we would need skills of that kind. So at that point I accepted that invitation and I joined that course. Having been trained in Russian and having my background in sociology meant that eventually I ended up in the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS in Washington, uh, while in uniform as an expert on Soviet and Russian developments. So that was the second major deflection in my career. Uh, there have been a number of others. In, sure. in many ways, my life could be described as <laughs> taking advantage of unusual opportunities that either I created or someone made for me that took me in different directions from the ones I'd been working on before. Uh, that probably is everybody's life. You know, you set out as a little girl to be a ballerina and you become, uh, you own a chain of bakeries. It's yeah, very in my case, no, no danger that one of the deflections would have led to my <laughs> being a ballerina, but I see what you, what you mean. Yeah. Now, you uh, were involved with at the Russian Research Center. Uh, at Harvard University at one point, and you wrote a book on Soviet totalitarianism. Is uh, that right? Never did a book on that title, but I did a number of books on Soviet society. Yes. My first yep. book in the field was called Public Opinion in Soviet Russia, and then at a later point I was involved in a book that had the, the title uh, uh, How the Soviet System Works. That's right. That's the one. That I'm was one that got quite a lot of public attention. Yes. Now, did you actually go to Russia one or more times, or this mainly uh, study from uh, interviews here or literary materials or what? Uh, are you a field Are you a field researcher, so to speak? Or I am a field researcher, but I was not a field researcher on Russia. Uh, during most of the time that I was interested in and working on Russian Soviet affairs, the Soviet Union was a closed country. It was impossible for anyone except someone who was brought there for propaganda purposes to spend any time in the country. It was not until about 1955 that the Soviet Union was first opened up to people from outside. So our problem was how do you study a country at a distance? Quite different from field work actually. Good question. And uh, the, the experience that I had had in the OSS during the war was in fact something that was continuous with that effort because I didn't have direct access to Soviet materials uh, uh, when I was in the OSS either. The judgments that I and the people working with me in, in the same organization had to make were based on an effort to use social science general knowledge and apply it to the Soviet case with whatever materials we happened to have available. Basically what we had available were materials that appeared in the public press most of that was controlled by the Communist Party and therefore had a lot of it had the character of, of, of being essentially a variation of either propaganda or justification of the regime. So the task of understanding what was actually happening in the Soviet Union was very challenging. After the Second World War, a very substantial number of Soviet citizens decided they had been displaced during the war, mostly taken as forced laborers by the German forces and spread across Europe. A large proportion of them decided not to go back to the Soviet Union and that made available for the first time a large pool of people who had lived as Soviet citizens across a wide range of social backgrounds and regional backgrounds who were available to social scientists to give testimony about what their life in the Soviet Union had been like. And it was on the basis of those interviews that we did in what was called the Russian Refugee Interview Project that we developed the material that came out in books like uh, uh, How the, the uh, Soviet System Works 
uh, and in the later book that I did with Raymond Bauer uh, called The Soviet Citizen, in which we try to set out in great detail combining published sources and what we learned from the interviews about what life in the Soviet Union was like for an ordinary citizen, what it was like to get married, what it was like to go to a local school, what it was like to enter your profession, what it was like to confront the propaganda that you got from the Communist Party and still preserve your own attitudes, values, and beliefs, and so on. And we tried on that basis to assess the strengths and weaknesses of the Soviet system. And you were involved in the actual interviewing for this because you had presumably become proficient in Russian. That's correct. Good. That's okay. correct. We, had, we sent a team of people. They were mostly either graduate students or scholars who had just recently completed the PhD. Uh, they formed a team. We, they were trained, they came from history, political science, sociology, anthropology. In Cambridge at Harvard, we brought them together. We outlined the general objectives of the program. We had input from them, suggestions of themes that they thought were important to develop. On that basis, we developed a general outline of our questionnaire. We then did a long series of what we called life history interviews. They tended to last as much as three and four and five days, covering all the aspects of a person's life. We did more than 350 of those. On the basis of that experience, we became convinced that it was possible to do a larger scale survey. So we brought together all the material and insights we'd gotten from the interviews and wrote a questionnaire, which was then administered to quite a few thousands of people. And the books that we wrote were basically built upon the insights we got by combining our knowledge about the formal system the experiences people told us about in detail in the life history, and the numerical analysis we could do by taking advantage of the material from the public opinion survey. Now, were these face-to-face -face interviews with people, or were they sitting privately filling out a questionnaire, uh, or both? What I refer to as the interviews were, in fact, literally interviews. They were face-to-face. -face. People were selected from the camps because they fit some scheme that we had about trying to get people at all educational levels, trying to get people at all occupational levels, uh, trying to get people from different ethnic backgrounds, trying to get people who were political and non-political. We had a little master plan of that kind. And we looked for people who met those criteria in the camps and invited them to come to our headquarters and be interviewed in a room as much like this as possible, a comfortable place right. uh, with tea and uh, cookies and uh, whatever encouragement could be offered to them. And because most of them were rather destitute, we paid them for their time. Now, you were also subsequently involved in the study of totalitarianism. And I recall controversies about whether that was in fact a valid concept, whether you could generalize about, say, Nazi Germany as a totalitarian society and Soviet Russia. Uh, someone like Bert Wolf, a late colleague of ours, was an advocate of the notion that totalitarianism was a very important social science concept, and yet there were others who were skeptics. Where did you stand on that position? Oh, I very much went along with the concept of the relevance of the idea of totalitarianism. In fact, I wrote a paper very early on in my career, which I was very proud of, called The Totalitarian Mystique. And I tried in that paper to set out what I thought were some of the peculiar qualities of a totalitarian society, taking into account both the experience in Nazi Germany and the experience in, uh, of Soviet communism, especially in the time of Stalin. At the same time that I felt that there was a distinctive feature to this type of society, one of the things that differentiated me and my work from 
at least one aspect of the main line of totalitarian studies, was that I emphasized that at least in the Soviet case, you couldn't explain everything that happened. In fact, there were certain things that you couldn't explain very much at all by main reference to the totalitarian model. For example? You, you had to consider other factors. Outstanding in the set of things that I stressed was the notion that while the Soviet Union was running a totalitarian political system, it was in fact also undergoing another process which was common to societies that were not totalitarian. Outstanding amongst those was the industrialization of the country. Related to the industrialization, of course, you had a large increase in urban population. So you had a massive process of urbanization. A third factor that was important was that you could not run a society of this type unless you had a large number of people who were well-educated and especially developed the sciences. So you had a society which was also industrial, urbanized, and stressing science. Those features of society, I argued, have their own dynamic. They have their own special consequences. And that even in a totalitarian system, if you bring about these forces of increased involvement of people in factory employment uh, and, and high-speed transportation and communication, if you get a much larger proportion of the population well-educated and literate, if you get a substantial increase in the amount of scientific activity that's going on, that will produce forces in the society and social consequences that are independent of the totalitarianism to some degree and will make what happens in the totalitarian society somewhat similar, not exactly the same, but somewhat similar to what happened in non-totalitarian societies in which these same processes were going on. And that made it possible to think, without it being a violation of good sense, of things that happened in the Soviet Union and things that happened in the United States as being basically similar or significantly related to each other. Now, you mentioned good sense. One of the to me, common critiques of sociology, which is your field, is that sociology is good sense, often obscured by jargon. Now, in your writings, you write with, with incredible lucidity and clarity. But I can think of all kinds of people, including Talcott Parsons, who wrote in really obscure prose, and yet you seem to be a great admirer of his. Um, I'm wondering whether the field of sociology has, has become more luminous and the writing clearer in recent years, or less so. Where do you see the profession going in terms of accessibility to the public? I don't think accessibility has increased. Uh, uh, but the kind of obscurantism that exists is different. <laughs> uh, uh, a, a, a new kind of uh, uh, doublespeak or gobbledygook has uh, emerged. Uh, and a lot of it is based on, it's ideologically driven, that is people increasingly come to sociology, I think, because they feel that it's a, an appropriate vehicle for transforming society and overcoming the grievances that they personally or their community may feel they have good reason to complain about. Uh, I have no objection to the idea that the motivation for entering sociology can be something of that kind. The problem is that it is, in my view, also a scientific discipline. And whatever your motivation for entering it may be, you've got to observe the rules of evidence and the general constraints about thinking that are characteristic of the discipline. Now, that often it does not get carried over. It's lost, 
and consequently you get a very different pattern of communication in a lot of contemporary sociology, which is, I would say, mostly the elaboration of certain concepts, but doesn't have very much of an empirical base. But it, it's unfortunate that people have the impression that they have about sociology based on this piece of evidence. Because in my view, it is still the case today that sociology is a cumulative discipline, that what we know is increasing both in depth and complexity and in veracity in many, many fields, fields like adolescent development, fields like criminology, fields like social stratification. In all of these, we have progressive straight line growth of knowledge, which is often lost sight of by people who focus on either the ideologically driven aspects of some people who enter the discipline or the propensity to develop a form of language which is basically jargon and doesn't necessarily add to scientific rigor. Now, you mentioned scientific rigor. Uh, one of the things that your writing has been lauded for, praised, is introducing scientific rigor, that is, uh, good empirical testing of theories. Uh, I've, I've seen an account, for example, by Samuel P. Huntington of Harvard praising one of your books in Foreign Affairs, in which you said that it was customary in studies in studying the concept of modernization uh, and national character, national identity, modal personality, to rely a lot upon crude stereotypes and caricatures. And that what you had begun to do and had made important uh, inroads on is to try to really come up with scientific data. What exactly does that consist of? Is this person-to-person uh, -person interviewing or questionnaires? And who administers them on your behalf from which you, get, you acquire the data on which you do your analysis? Again, I apologize for a complex question. Uh, well, let, let me respond with regard to, to two parts of the question. Uh, the first part uh, involves trying to clarify the meaning of national character. Uh, throughout modern history, there have been many, many things written about different national communities. Uh, often they have been extremely ideological. Uh, sometimes uh, they have served special political purposes. Uh, sometimes they've been a thinly veiled way of expressing basic prejudices about or against some people. And therefore, any effort to discuss a concept like national character starts out with a very, very substantial freight because of this history. So the first thing one has to do if one wants to make progress in this realm, assuming that it's a question that's worth thinking about, is to try to decide what one is broadly going to mean by national character. Now, there are many different ways of doing that, and they're quite legitimate. For example, there's no reason why you can't say, from my point of view, national character is made up mainly of the particular institutions that characterize a given country, such as, for example, whether they have democracy or are non-democratic, uh, or whether they uh, are characterized by the predominance of a rural population or an urban population. Uh, some people feel the most appropriate way to approach national character is by looking at cultural products. So they say, let's look at what is characteristic of the literature of the country. And if in the literature you find a lot of violence and conflict, that's a way of defining the national character. If in another literature you find a preoccupation with emotions, that's the way of defining the national character. That's why a lot of people reading Russian literature have their impression about what the Russian character ought to be, mainly on the basis of writings of people like Dostoevsky, which is certainly not irrelevant, but gives you only one point right. of view. 
My own particular approach to the problem has been to say it's a reasonable assumption and supported by quite a lot of experience that the dominant values, the approaches to life, basic attitudes and values in population A as against country B may be different in some very important respects. May also be alike in some respects because they might both be, let's say, industrial countries that are urbanized. And the problem, as I put it then, was to say, if that is what you mean by national character, differences, similarities or differences between nations in basic attitudes and values, conceptions of the good life, expressions of happiness or misery, uh, notions about what is fair and unfair, preoccupations with justice, whatever. If those are the things that you say should define the national character, what would be the most appropriate way of finding out what is really true about country A as against country B? Uh, that takes me to the second part of my response, having clarified the sure. conceptual issue. I decided that compared to history, in the period after the Second World War, certain what you might think of social technology developments made it possible to put the study of national character on a wholly new footing. Because for the first time, we had representative national samples being asked questions of a very basic kind about the people's attitudes and values and their approaches to daily living. And that opened up the prospect that by using that material and looking across from one country to another, one could begin to develop a general picture of whether or not, in fact, there was anything at all to the idea of national character. And if there was anything to the idea, what were the ways in which a particular country or set of countries might be seen to be, if not unique, at least distinctive compared to other countries? In such things as trust, hopefulness, uh, 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 happiness, uh, ease of interpersonal relations, uh, confidence in exchange, all sorts of issues of that kind. And this became possible from about 1950 on. And what was the catalyst for change here? Where did this polling data or uh, interview material come from? Who was, who was generating it across country lines? The first studies of this kind were done by a man named Hadley Cantrell. Sure. In fact, I'm very proud of the fact that Eventually, a prize in his name was established by his family, and I received the first Hadley Cantrell Award for some of my research in the realm of public opinion. Uh, he, uh, the name is reasonably well known, he was one of the early pollsters in the United right. States, but he was very curious about this issue of national differences. And he had agents in various countries who were doing Cantrell polls for him. So he got the idea of raising funds and asking exactly the same set of questions about basic attitudes and values in a large number of different countries. And he rep those results were for the period just around 1950 was the time of, of publication. Uh, he had an unusual, he, he was challenged by the idea that if you asked questions of a rather personal kind and move from one country to another, the translation process might change the meaning of the question. So for example, in order to judge happiness, he gave people a little ladder and he said, now where would you place yourself on this ladder of happiness if the bottom step is zero and the top step is 10? And he thought that would help. He also did it as a mountain. You can climb up the mountain and down the mountain, positive on one side, negative on the other. And he, he asked quite a few very interesting questions, 
And that created the baseline. And for me, that was a revelation when that, when that material came along, because I, given what I've said before, you can see how I drew the conclusion. Aha, now we get the beginning of the possibility of a systematic, data-based, scientific analysis of national character. And so I began to look at that material to see, to get answers to the questions of, are there distinctive features? Uh, are the countries which are distinctive clustered in a given way? Is there a lot of variation within the clusters? Those are the questions I began to address uh, uh, using that kind of material. Now, over time, more and more polling agencies got the idea that it's interesting to ask the same question in a large number of countries at the same time. The most recent example is the work of Gallup. Gallup now does very large international surveys. And also some scholars have begun to do this systematically. So we have something called the Eurobarometer, which has been extended to many other countries, in which the same questions are asked in national representative samples in many, many countries at the same time. I'm wondering now if the World Wide Web or the Internet has in any way facilitated or led to some new stage of development in finding out about public opinion. Well, it's not something I've explored. It's a possibility, because obviously you could reach a much larger audience at much lower cost than you do by normal public opinion survey methods, but you'd have a lot of difficulty in assuring that, in fact, the people you were asking the question of were the ones who represented right. the category you're interested mm -hmm. in, and that the person who gave the answer was the person you addressed the question to. Uh -huh. It's like the problem of who comes to college reunions. Only the successful come because the rest are embarrassed, and so you get a <laughs> skewed sample of right. uh, how well people have made yeah. out. Right, uh-huh, right. Come back a little bit uh, in time. Who are your heroes in the field of sociology? Who, are the, who to you are the great figures, the pioneers who are enduring? And let me ask it in relation to Sigmund Freud, who in the field of psychology or psychotherapy goes through great waves, ebbs and flows of popularity. Right now he's in disesteem, it seems, and all kinds of illustrious people are attacking him. Are there any enduring giants in the field of sociology whose work you well, not only personally admire, but work that's been held up. The, the people who influenced me the most uh, were Emile Durkheim, yeah. uh, because uh, uh, he, in France, uh, enunciated most clearly and strongly uh, the principle that it was possible to have a social science of society and that it could rest on empirical knowledge and that it could be, by and large, reasonably objective. Uh, uh, Max Weber, uh, who worked in much the same time, a little bit later, uh, in Germany, who upheld similar standards, uh, did not have the same impulse towards measurement that Durkheim had, but tried more to do historical analysis, but was preoccupied with very similar kinds of questions, trying to understand what is the nature of the difference between country A and country B in terms of their social structure, their history, their values, and what are the forces that drove that? What are the responses to industrialization and urbanization? Uh, uh, and then you mentioned Freud. Uh, Freud was a very important influence early in my life. Uh, as you uh, know, I one time took psychoanalytic training, although not for the purpose of being a psychoanalyst, but because it was assumed by various people and by myself that it might be useful for me in one line of my work, which we haven't discussed, and that's the relationship between personality and social structure, ah. which has been one of my the central themes in my research throughout my life. Well, let's come to that in a minute. Are there any other major figures who, who have fundamentally influenced you or whom you regard as 
the heroes of your of your profession of sociology? Uh, well, to come down to the uh, uh, more contemporary time, I, uh, uh, three of my teachers were heroes for me. Who were they? Uh, uh, I mentioned Leonard Cottrell. Sure. Uh, who was the man who Hadley? Uh, uh, no, Leonard Cottrell. Who, oh. Oh, not the, Hadley. The, the man, uh, no, ha the, the other was Hadley oh, right. Cantrell. Yeah, yeah okay. Uh, <laughs> Leonard Cantrell was my professor at Cornell. Right. And he was Slats, the, uh, Slats, the man who got okay. me into sociology. Uh, uh, he, he provided me, uh, in the first place, uh, with an image of uh, a dispassionate uh, uh, mind, yet motivated by the most profound genuine of human feelings combined in a process of analysis of social phenomena. And uh, uh, he also sensitized me a great deal to the importance of personality factors uh, in understanding social processes. Uh, I was, when I was his graduate student, an almost complete social determinist. Uh, I believe that everything important that happened in life was generated by objective social factors, the kind of thinking that would be true of a Marxist, although right. I was not particularly a Marxist. In fact, on one occasion, he had to be away, and I was his course assistant. He asked me to give the two lectures that he would not be able to give, and I had taken them as an undergraduate and then as a graduate, so I had very good notes that permitted me to uh, give the course exactly as he had. But I put aside his notes, and I gave two lectures in which I argued mainly for my position, contrary to his own. And he was such a generous person. He, when he came back a few weeks later, not immediately, on one occasion, he smiled and said, I hear that when I was away, you gave a lecture that didn't exactly have the content that you knew that I would have put into it with a twinkle in his eye. And I said, yes, I did that. I said, I hope it wasn't wrong. And he said, no. He said, he said I think it was quite right. He said, uh, uh, when you're on the platform, you have to speak for yourself, sure. not for somebody else. Uh, uh, the the uh, uh, other two figures I, I would mention, maybe three, uh, uh, Paul Lassesfeld was my professor at Columbia, where I got my PhD, and he was the one who gave me the beginning of my sense of what the potential was of using public opinion data and public opinion research methods to find out what is true about people in the aggregate in a way that's different from the way history or political science is able to do it. Uh, Robert Merton, uh, who uh, worked very closely with Paul Lassesfeld and gave me an image of how it was possible to have the rigor that Paul Lassesfeld had in doing survey research, but combining it with the sort of classical theoretical concerns of the sort that were part of the sociological tradition. He embodied that himself very much. Uh, 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 and, uh, well, I'll stop there. I think that's an... Uh, Merton must be the grand old man now. He must be at least 90. Yes, he is, yeah. but he's still going. Yeah, good. Still writes people notes. And, okay, now let's come back to what you were saying about uh, Freud as a bridge to the, the um, relationship between personality and social structure. What exactly does that mean? It sounds like three apparently discrete concepts. How do they interrelate? Well, uh, uh, I don't think we should stress Freud too much in this context, except for the value that Freud might have in providing an image of how the personal personality is structured. Uh, his search for the roots of personality 
went in directions very different from my own because he felt that the main source of these differences in personality were either accidents of the life history or to some extent were basically biological and genetic. My own concern was with trying to understand the question of whether or not first there were marked differences in personality as you move from one culture and society to another that could be objectively established that weren't just matters of hearsay. That's closely related to the points I made about studying attitudes and values, but you also could do it at a deeper level that might be called personality. Although from my point of view, it's a continuum. Personality runs all the way from rather common and obvious attitudes and values down to the deeper dispositions that characterize a person, their strivings, their fears, their anxieties. So the first question was, can you distinguish differences in basic personality as you move from one culture or community to another? Then if there are such differences, you have two interesting and challenging questions to deal with. First, what might be the sources of those differences? Why would the population in country A be basically different from the population in country B in terms of basic dispositions? And then you had what is increasingly an interesting and researchable question, the issue, what are the consequences of those differences? Uh, would it be true that a country in which most people were optimistic, for example, or full of trust, would have a better chance of economic development than would be true in a country in which people were very seldom optimistic and by and large did not trust most other people? Now, I'm familiar with studies like those of Edward Banfield and his wife about a small Italian town, which they probably did in the 1950s. And then more recently, the work of Robert Putnam, also about an Italian town with involving trust as an important concept. But how does one do this across an entire nation? How does one, um, I mean, you could, in effect, find any kind of American you want by looking in the right part of the country. How do you get a, how do you get a cross section of a country so that you know that this is a reliable sample? Well, the, the, the field of sampling is an extremely well-developed technology in the modern world. A lot of the increased knowledge that we have about how to sample a population was driven by commercial concerns. People had something to sell, wanted to know what the population thought. And social sciences piggybacked on that. Well, there, there was an interaction. Right. Uh, uh, it's also related to politics. Uh, people wanted to know how would the vote come out. In order to do that, you had to find some way of assessing the attitudes and values of the population, and also you had to ha find some way of finding out reliably how people intended to vote. In order to do that, you had to have a picture of the social composition of the population by geographic region, by age, by sex. All of that depends upon using census data. When you have that, modern technology produces sampling techniques which permit you to give the equivalent of the national population with as few as 2,000 people, even less. And experience has shown that you can have a very high level of prediction on the basis of that kind of a sample about all sorts of very important objective behavior, like how intellectual will come out. Now that same underlying technology can be used to assess the distribution, not of voting intentions, but the distribution of attitudes and values in the population. There are various ways of doing this. I mean, one of the most simple, and you might think it's a high-risk venture, and in some ways it is, is to say to somebody, on the whole, are you happy or unhappy? And a person 
obviously <laughs> has lots of opportunity to respond to that. But it's so open-ended, you think that the answer won't be worth anything. Uh, but uh, on the other hand, it could be so specific that it was you're putting words into his mouth. It's striking that fine balance. Yeah. Now, now we come to the point where you have to realize that these questions are asked in the context of getting a lot of other information, because precisely the concern that you express existed on the part of the people who first asked these questions. They had to ask themselves, does this answer have any meaning? One and, of the things and can I trust? Can I trust the answer given, or is he telling me what he thinks a good person would answer? Uh, there's always that possibility. Do you, do you drink too much? Do you beat your wife? No one's going to say, I'm an alcoholic wife beater, I think. Well, a lot of people, in fact, will acknowledge that kind of information. You're wrong <laughs> in that respect. Uh, but, 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 but uh, um, for example, it's now possible to make a reasonable estimate of whether or not uh, 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 people are involved in, in homosexual relationships. It used to be impossible because no one would come out of the closet. But right. So it does depend that the answers to these questions do obviously depend upon historical factors and the, the relative trust or mistrust between the interviewer and the interviewee. But what we have found is that there's a large amount of evidence, you might call it a mountain of evidence, that indicates that the responses to this type of question is linked to certain things which can be objectively measured. Uh, it's also linked to attitudes and values which themselves give you confidence in the response. I'll give you one simple example that emerges from the comparative studies which have been done. If you ask, are you happy uh, or unhappy? Is life difficult or not difficult? And then you correlate the answers in national populations, answers given to that question, to other questions, such as, for example, are you having a very hard time feeding your family? Uh, are you often short of food? Uh, do you feel you have difficulty meeting ends almost every day. It turns out that in the countries in which a large proportion of people say they're having difficulty with these life problems, a larger proportion of the people in those same countries are likely to say life is difficult and they're not happy. So there's consistency in the answers. There's a very considerable amount of consistency, but there are also some great surprises. And that's one of the things that makes this research so fascinating. See, there I, are countries where this pattern doesn't hold in the way you would expect it. For example, the Japanese, who in recent years have certainly had a very good income and enjoy relatively adequate housing and certainly a steady food supply, they tend to be very low in the proportion who say they're happy. Uh, is the that a fear of tempting the gods, or is that modesty, or, or just a national psychological characteristic, or what? Well, the first line of analysis tends to fall back on this idea of national character. That is to say, we say, well, if you want to understand what's unique about the Japanese, one of the things that seems to be unique about them is that despite very positive objective circumstances in their life, they tend to say they're not happy. A counterexample, the Brazilians. The Brazilians are not very well-to-do uh, financially and economically. They don't live in a politically stable environment. A high proportion of them will say, objectively, I'm not finding it easy to feed my family. But when you say, are you happy? A surprisingly large proportion of the Brazilians say they're happy. So you have this interesting phenomenon. You have, on the one hand, a pattern of consistency in general to express it in 
more technical terms, if you do a correlation coefficient. In general, the correlation between the answers to these objective conditions and the life satisfaction question is about 0.65 or 0.67. That's quite high in the world of correlations. It means overwhelmingly, in most cases, the people who say that they are having difficulty with daily living are likely to be populations that say that they are not too happy with life. At the same time, you have these exceptions, which are fascinating to look at, right. to try to understand, well, why are they exceptions? What is it that makes them so? And you, you end up believing a lot in national character as a result of this. And then there's still another interesting question, fascinating. Are countries fixed forever at their level of satisfaction? And here again, we have complex and somewhat conflicting information. On the one hand, the relative standing of a country, on average, with regard to the happiness question, tends to be very stable. For example, for periods as long as 10 and even 20 years, the rank order of countries in Europe remains about the same. The Anglo-Saxon countries have high proportions of people who say they're satisfied with life. The southern countries, France, Greece, Italy. in particular, Italy, are high in the proportion who say we're not satisfied with life. Life is not giving us very much. We're unhappy. We're not comfortable. And this is true beyond what you'd predict from differences in income. Now, could that be a factor not of national culture, but of religious identification? Those countries you named are primarily Greek or, uh, uh, sorry, or Catholic. Catholic. And uh, England and British Islands are primarily, though not exclusively, Protestant. Could, could religion be influence, influencing um, I thought you'd ask that question, and the answer is yes, somewhat, but again, this proves to be a very interesting and complicated issue. And to deal with it, I have to go back to some evidence that I didn't give you about economic change. Uh, there are some countries we've been able to study from the time they were very poor. Uh, right after the Second World War, there were some countries that were extremely poor. Uh, we can ask, we've a in those, a few of those countries, not many, we've asked the same question about happiness over time as the country became richer. Now, the evidence is, although not everybody agrees about it, but I have evidence, at least for a few selected countries, that as they become more well-to-do, on average, the population was more satisfied. So, uh, a, a, a nation is not frozen forever. Uh, it, its level of satisfaction. It can be influenced by outside factors, but it's a relatively durable phenomenon. The other aspect of this that's interesting, if you approach issues like Catholicism, you'd say, well, what about the people who are Catholics in a country that's half Catholic and half Protestant? Are the Catholics very different from the Protestants in that country? It proves to be not the case. Mm -hmm. By and large, a nation has a typical average response pattern. I mean, obviously, there's variation around that. And whether you're Catholic or Protestant, in fact, in general, whether you're rich or poor, you tend to respond to the happiness question, mostly in accordance with the mode of expression of your fellow nationals and not in accordance with your objective economic status. Now, I wonder if what binds people together in countries might be the movie industry, that is, there's a sip, the sense of life in a uh, Brazilian movie might be quite different from that of a Scottish movie or a Norwegian movie. You imagine a Norwegian or Swedish movie be dark and brooding, sort of Ingemar Bergman, and Brazilian, you'd, you'd imagine music would be going all the time. It is, uh, is the movie the homogenizing factor? 
the sense that people primarily see movies made in their own culture, and that reinforces what are the normal expectations, the average expectations of this country, or is it something else? Well, I rather doubt that the movies create these national moods. They probably uh, reflect they, they them. They existed maybe. long before movies. Of course. Uh, it's possible that movies reinforce them, but I think the thing you have to recognize about movies is that many of them are made with some kind of an international audience in mind, and that's sure. especially true of the American movie. So you might really ask, is the world be be going to become homogenized uh, because My next of the influence <laughs> of things like the American movie industry? And is that the case? More and more people all over the world are watching American TV series and getting a sense of what an average home has, you know, microwaves, appliances, televisions, VCRs, uh, and a thousand other things. Is uh, American movies and our American television series changing the, re the way people in other countries see their possibilities? Does it increase their dissatisfaction with their lower standards of living? Does it make them does it foster, for example, a brain drain? Does a bright young person in India want to go off and be, come to Silicon Valley or to an American medical school rather than stay home and be subject to the constraints of a traditional society? Well, you're asking me to explain the phenomenon of homogenization. Yes. But I think we might start first by asking what is the evidence with regard to homogenization before we explain it. Of course. Uh, so okay. <laughs> so uh, uh, let me say a word about that. Uh, uh, there's no question uh, that uh, certain attitudes, in my mind at least, uh, that certain attitudes and values are spreading around the world at a very rapid rate. Uh, uh, this is not producing the uh, 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 miraculous transformation that some people think is happening. For example, there are very large numbers, millions of people living in isolated Indian villages who are not significantly participating in this process. Uh, they may do in complex ways, but, but, but they're not uh, uh, a central part of it. On the other hand, there are a great many poor people who in earlier times would have been completely isolated from these influences, who now as a minimum have a television set. They'll have that before they have a telephone. Uh, 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 and uh, they do get opportunities to see the movies that are produced worldwide. So we know those are the common influences. Uh, I, I think, without uh, burdening you with numbers, I think I can show objectively that there is a process of homogenization in attitudes and values that's going on worldwide. Uh, it's a process, however, which in my opinion cannot be attributed uh, solely or even exclusively, nor in my opinion predominantly, to influences like television and American movies. I think these common responses are brought about by something quite different. This goes back to my interest in personality and social structure. These common attitudes are brought about increasingly because people live in social environments that are more alike. And in their response to the pressures and influences of these environments, they develop attitudes and values that are more alike as you go from country to country. For example, you may remember that I mentioned the in the beginning of our conversation, the wide dispersal of employment in an industrial setting, which right. is now being replaced by new modes of involvement. But for, for a while, that's the main way new ways of living were spread around the world. Now, in my studies of becoming modern, I showed that the result of working in a factory 
produced attitudes and values that were very similar in the direction of change that they were, they were producing across six very different countries. So in my opinion... Well, the, what would be some example? For, related, say, to women. Do women who work in factories have a different ex set of expectations about life, about marital partners, uh, independence, deferred marriage, childbearing? I think there's a lot of evidence to support that, but I can't argue for it from my own research. But I, because we interviewed only men, we were studying countries at a time when women were not particularly involved in industry. But I can answer exactly that question with regard to the men, and it's a puzzle Good. because no one understands the exact mechanism. But the longer a man stays in a factory, the more he's likely to believe in birth control, the more he will practice birth control, and the fewer children he will have compared to a person who's the same age, the same background, but didn't have the experience of leaving the village and going to work in a factory. Uh, Another thing that changes tremendously as a result of factory experience is a sense of personal efficacy. The feeling that mankind can solve its problems as against the feeling of passivity and fatalism, which is very common in many cultures. Uh, so on a large number of demands, openness to new experience, which is in some psychological schemes considered one of the five most important things to study about any human being, openness to new experience. We found that the longer a man worked in a factory, the more he became open to new experience, that is to say, to new and different ways of doing things. So if this process is happening simultaneously in a number of different countries, because the economic structure is being changed, then you'd get parallel shifts in attitudes and values in all of these countries. And that would make it look as if they are being homogenized, which they are in one sense, but not necessarily because the movies are making them that way or the radio. I think that assigns too much power to the mass media. I mean, they do play a role, no doubt. Uh, not long ago, I went to Finland to a conference. It was in a relatively small Finnish city. I had to get off the plane at the a national capital and take a bus for two and a half hours to a relatively small town. I got off in the town square. There was virtually nobody there, but there was one boy on a bicycle and he was wearing his cap, not with the peak forward, but with the peak back. This was four or five years ago. And I wondered, I, I had just left the United States where every kid was wearing his cap that way. How come the kid in this small town in Finland was wearing his cap that way. No question in my mind that was an influence of television. That was not a matter of independent discovery. Right. I mean, there are definitely such influences, but I think it's easy to exaggerate them. The things that are most deeply rooted don't change that easily because someone watches a television program. I think it requires reinforcement from daily life. The kind of thing that comes from getting more schooling because that affects your reasoning ability, from working in a rational, techn high technology environment, from using uh, instruments of all kinds, machinery, uh, traveling in, in uh, modern uh, uh, conveniences when you go from one place to another, all of those are the influences that, that are sort of lessons for people. That's really a motto of my research. I say people are very good at reading their environment, and they know how to draw the conclusions from the environment. And if they're in similar environments, they draw similar conclusions. And that's what brings about a high degree of convergence. Now, you see people, as a result of exposure to, say, factory work or work outside the home, becoming more secular, um, more rationalistic, more optimistic, more scientific in their outlook, less superstitious, uh, etc. 
does there seem to be also at the same time a recoiling or reaction or aversion to the secularization process in some countries? I think of a major resurgence of um, biblical fundamentalism in this country, of the Hasidim in, uh, in Brooklyn, who were in a certain sense still se several centuries back, or in Israel where they want to have very large families and want to avoid all kinds of contact with um, the modern world as much as possible, where they want women to be, to be dressed modestly. The same thing is true in Iraq and Iran and other countries. Does there seem to be, on the one hand, a wave of secularization, and on the other hand, a, a, a backlash against it? You're absolutely right. Um, the process shouldn't be understood as either being simple straight line. There that, are many- that was, that was what my question was really are, getting at. There are many at. twists and turns. Uh, and, and there are very significant reversals because of reactions that people have. Uh, uh, and uh, These have two different forms. You mentioned mainly one. Uh, the process of modernization and the whole social change package that comes with that obviously changes human relations in fundamental ways. Man to man, man to woman, parent to child, child to parent, child to peer, teacher to child. All of those relationships undergo changes in the process of modernization and homogenization. The result of that is that many relationships which have been stable and coherent become unstable, incoherent. People don't know exactly how to act, or they're obliged to act in ways that violate a sense that they have of what's right and wrong on the basis of previous experience or their own personality. The result of that is you're likely to get a certain amount of confusion and uncertainty in the modernization process because people don't know, how am I supposed to act? How am I supposed to feel? Or how do I fit who I am into this role that's available for me as against some other role that I might like to be in? The other form that this takes is that it's a threat to many people. The first group I'm describing are in the process, but they're suffering confusion and uncertainty because of the rapidity of change and the uncertainty that that creates. The second group are those who are threatened. They're not in the process. They want to be out of the process because it seems to be taking everybody in a direction which violates fundamental principles of life to which they're deeply committed. Uh, so these Reactions come partly from religion, especially those religions that are either not able to adapt or don't have within them streams of thought that can be made to seem to fit the requirements of the new modern life. And the other problem that you face in these circumstances is that many interpersonal relations are completely disturbed. And the consequence of that is that people look for more security, for a steadier experience, for more reliability in their human relations. And one way they seek to get that is to isolate themselves. So you sometimes have these utopian communities that are established. Sometimes they build a wall around themselves. That is, they don't allow foreign newspapers. They don't allow children to listen to the, new, to the radio. Uh, they don't allow television sets to enter. That's another way of doing it. And still a third way, and politically the most significant, is when you organize a counter movement. You say these forces are the forces of evil. They represent the devil. They represent what's wrong, and it must be crushed or destroyed. And that's the kind of thing that's tearing many countries apart at the present time. In California, where we are, in, the, in my circle of acquaintances, many of my friends, like myself, are Jewish, but only in a secular sense, not non-observant. And they suddenly find their children becoming ultra-Orthodox. 
And it's astonishing, and, and for me, the psychological explanation is they want guideposts. They want parameters in which to lead their lives. They want rules and customs that they can conform to, to have a special identity, that there's, in fact, too much freedom. Is that, does that strike you as plausible, as the attraction of becoming fundamentalist or ultra-orthodox? Well, in the realm of, of politics, you have the notion that there's too much freedom that's expressed in the idea of license. Uh, uh, and the, the famous statement that you're not free uh, under the rules of free speech to shout fire in a crowded theater. Uh, uh, that, that's in the public realm. In the private realm, you have a very similar phenomenon, and that is the question of whether or not you can either maintain your own personal integrity and coherence as a human being. That's not an issue we talked about, but it's a concern that I have about when I talk about personality and social structure, there's always the question, does the society require me to have feelings, attitudes, and values, and does it respond to those that I have in a way that permits me to have a sense of personal integrity? Or does it ask me to act in a way that I feel is a violation of my personal integrity? Now, one of the things that happens if you have rapid enough social change is that the fit between what's in the environment and what's in the person is likely to become much looser than existed before. For some people, that becomes intolerable. And one response that they make is either to rigidify the social structure or to rigidify their personality in response to the environment they're in. But another way of dealing with it is to say, we have to develop human beings who are more flexible, more open to new experience, more adaptable than has been characteristic through most of human history because we're going through a process of external social change that is highly accelerated. Now, that's not e something easy to bring about. And it can't be done without reference, in my view, to the existence of some real absolute limits. A person has to have some kind of an inner coherence, some degree of internal integrity, some element, some sense of consistency in how they behave and act. And a world which brings people, large numbers of people, to the point where that is completely gone is a world that's headed, in my view, for a lot of trouble. Fascinating. Thank you very much, Alex. Want more episodes like this? Don't forget to subscribe and get updates each week for the Free to Choose Media Podcast.